Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and this is the Hedge Podcast. Thank you for being with me with me here another week, another show. We've got new stuff going on. There's always new content, new news coming out for us to catch up on. And that's what I'm going to do today. I want to talk through a couple of things that's, that are going on in the world of investing uh, in particular, I want to talk about Netflix. Um, I think we're seeing a really interesting case study with what's happening with um, with with Netflix, with the share price, with the business model, uh, and I think it's definitely something worth having a bit of a talk about, um, giving you my thoughts on it. We've had some other bits and pieces coming out this week. Obviously, um, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. I'm eating humble pie. I caught it on the Friday lunch money segment a uh, week before last. I said. I talked through it, but I said I, I didn't think it was going to happen, and here we go. Looks like it's going to happen, and I think uh, I just want to expand on that a little bit and talk a bit about how it looks like that, um, or a big part of the funding from that uh, of of that deal is coming from, because I think that flows on nicely from um, from uh, Nick Bradley, the Nick Bradley episode a couple of weeks ago, um, where I spoke to him, um, and he talked about leverage buyouts and private equity, and it's kind of got some similarity to how the deal is happening with Twitter. So I think that's interesting to talk about. I've got a listener question to talk through as well. Um, There's plenty of stuff to go through today. I think, uh, well, I don't think. I know that I've got a couple of um, interviews coming in the pipeline. Um, One is in the editing studio, as they say, which is basically just, it's on my laptop. It's in my editing program. I've just not finished it yet. Um, And the other one I'm recording this week. So Got some interesting, uh, well, some some different interviews coming your way. One of them is actually me being interviewed um, by a good friend of the show, um, Rachel Martin from Accountant She. Uh, and then we've got, I've got uh, another investment professional, another industry person, uh, analyst, um, who we're going to be talking through what the markets are up to, what we expect them to do over the next twelve months. There's plenty coming down the pipeline. Now, of course, if you have topics you'd like me to cover on the show, if you've got things you'd like me to talk about, things you read in the news that you want a little bit more information about, things that you have come across in your own financial circumstances that you want a bit more detail on or you want to run the question past somebody, as always, get in touch with me. I would love to hear from you. Best way to do that, jump on the website, thehedge.io. Head over to there, read a couple of articles while you're there. I'm dropping them three, four times a week, sometimes even more, and hit the contact button. There's ways to get in touch with me via social media. There's the the, the good old-fashioned email. Let me know your question. I would love to answer it on the podcast. First things first, though. Let's well, not first things first, really. The, the episode's already started, but let's let's dive into what's happening with Netflix, right? So Netflix. This is a really interesting case study, and I think it's a quite fascinating business to watch because they basically the market that they operate in. They they created it. Right, you know, effectively, there was really no streaming service like Netflix before there was Netflix. You know, for those of you, a lot of you probably already know this, but for those of the, for those of you that don't, Netflix started by mail order, uh, and I remember my parents actually back in Australia. Um, I was in high school. My parents signed up to Netflix, original Netflix, and they would they would still do the, the orders online, but they would go in there. They would choose like a few DVDs. This is when literally Blockbuster down the road, the old school one where Friday afternoon, Friday evening after school, we'd go down there and walk around the aisles and pick our videos and maybe grab some popcorn and stuff. It was kind of cool when you look back on it. Um, anyway, they signed up for Netflix first time 
you go on the website, it would look kind of similar to how your the browser looks on your TV now, you know, just all these titles. And you'd pick the ones you'd want to watch. You could normally get, I can't remember, like five, ten discs at a time, DVDs at a time. They'd post them out to you. And then when you're finished watching them, you'd post them back. Um and at the time, we thought that was that was amazing. That was awesome because um, you could, you know, get these things delivered through your front door. And obviously, from that, they they um, eventually transitioned to streaming, which is where their business really, really took off. And it, you know, it's been it's been a good good what decade for Netflix. You know, that the, the uh, I'm just going to look it up right now. The Netflix share price. I was looking at it earlier today, um, but. You know, if, if you look, if you'd invested in the IPO, which we we're talking about the IPO before, uh, sh- oh shit, longer than I thought. So the IPO um, was back in 2002. I'm actually amazed that it was that that long ago. Obviously, when they're still doing discs, but you know, back then the shares were trading for a dollar twenty-one US, and then they peaked last year. Let me just find this properly. Last year at six hundred ninety-one dollars. US. So that's a pretty good return. If you're buying shares at a buck, they're worth 600, almost 700 bucks. That's pretty good. So, you know, they performed incredibly well, but there's been a number of missteps uh, really that they've made. You know, I think I think we've all seen how the industry has um, matured, I guess you would say, you know, it, and it's getting kind of annoying now. You know, it used to be that Netflix had shows from all the major studios, all of the major, um, uh, the major TV stations because they didn't have any other option, really. I mean, you know, yeah, you can watch it on on the actual channel, on the freeware channel, but or cable if you're in America. But broadly speaking, you know, this was a new avenue where companies could pick up some, uh, some additional revenue by licensing the shows to Netflix. And over time, those deals have expired, and most of these companies now have their own. You know, we have so many different streaming services that we can choose from. Um, and even just in the last kind of year or so, year or two, we've had new ones still coming on board. You know, Apple TV Plus, uh, Disney Plus, massive, massive companies with huge budgets coming into this space. And we're seeing Netflix struggle. You know, they, they for the first time, Q1 this year, the first time ever, they lost users. Um, so I think they lost 200,000 users in Q1, and they're expecting to lose 2 million users in Q2. And what makes this really interesting to me is the way they're looking to tackle this problem. Um, you know, they're talking about charging people to share their passwords. They're talking about putting ads on TV sh- on TV shows on Netflix. Uh, they're talking about all sorts of kind of ideas that are going to make the user user experience a lot worse or really hike up the price. And they have already been hiking up the price quite a lot. And basically, the market's reacting really badly to how they're handling this this kind of difficult period. So I mentioned just before the peak for the share price was end of last year. So 17th of November last year, the price closed just over $691. And as of right now, I'm looking at it's the market's open, so it's changing all the time. But as of right now, the, the price is $200, just over $200.56. So that's a huge drop. You know, from that's almost seventy percent down from its peak at the end of last year, um, and I think this is just a really good lesson on again on diversification. I know I bang about bang on about this all a lot, but you know, whenever you see a really good example like this, it just makes you remember, and, and it's a good um, a good reminder that this can happen to any company. If, if you know, if we if you've gone back what ten years, not even ten years, you know, if you've gone back four years 
there was really only one game in town when it came to streaming and we were all streaming more. We were all spending more time um, consuming content, consuming TV shows, consuming movies at home. You would think Netflix is absolutely going to kill it. There's no way that anybody else is going to get in in there given they've had first mover advantage they've had so much you know, they've got so much money behind them and yet here we are uh, and they're really struggling and you know I wouldn't be surprised if Netflix becomes like Blockbuster you know it's not going anywhere anytime soon it's going to be around for a long time but you know over time it may end up losing to a lot of these other streaming services that have the IP you know Disney Plus has bought Star Wars and Marvel well they're going to continue to be able to create content around that. Netflix are having to constantly come up with new ideas or license new content, new ideas, because they don't have that that IP that they've purchased themselves. So I just think it's an, a really interesting story. It's going to be um, just one to watch. And again, a reminder that, you know, it, diversification is the name of the game. Trying to pick individual stocks, you never know when there's going to be news that comes out that really uh, throws a cat amongst the pigeons. So the next thing I wanted to have a little bit of a talk about was Elon Musk buying Twitter. Yes, apparently it is happening. $44 million, I think, is the number that we've seen. Uh, apparently he's putting up a pretty big chunk of that in cash himself, I think $15 billion. Um, I mean, shit, throwing around billions like that, the fact that someone could just go and buy a company like the size of Twitter is kind of mind-blowing. But anyway, he's taking it private, basically. So it is a publicly traded company now, so you can buy shares in Twitter. Um, and soon you won't be able to. Soon he will be buying it with some of his cash and some cash from other people, um, and it will be a private company. It means it will be a lot more difficult to find out details about it, um, not that it will matter so much for investors. Like I say, you can't, we can't invest in it anyway, um, but he's doing it on the basis of free speech, um, you know, whatever that, that might mean, whatever positives or negatives you take from that, I'm definitely not getting into that can of worms. Um, but there you go. It's interesting. Now, what I wanted to talk about this a little bit, not I'm not going to spend ages on this, but just explaining kind of how these deals can be structured. Now, I'll admit my knowledge on this is not as in-depth as my good friend Nick, who was on the show, Nick Bradley, who talked through a little bit of this in that in that episode. I, I was really curious on to how some of these deals work, but kind of listening to him, talking to him, learning a bit more about this space, you know, it's it's kind of interesting that this has come up now because you know, effectively, what he is doing. Well, we don't know the full details of. It, let me let me say that, but, but but effectively, he has said that he's putting around fifteen billion of his own money in, and that means the rest of it has to be borrowed, and. The funny thing is, is that he's borrowing against the asset that he's buying. So it's kind of similar to you going to purchase a house, right? So if you're purchasing a house that is worth 300,000 pounds, it doesn't mean you have 300,000 pounds sitting in cash in the bank. And I think that's what a lot of people have in mind when companies are being bought by other companies um, or by billionaires, as is the case here. But actually, in a lot of ways, a lot of a lot of cases, that's not what happens. Some cash is often put up initially, as is happening here, and that's like your deposit on your house, right? You put, if you're buying a house for three hundred thousand pounds, you put up three hundred, uh, sorry, thirty thousand pounds of your own money. That's your ten percent deposit, and then the bank loans you the rest. You still own the house. You can do what you want with the house. You can knock down walls in the house. You can resell the house. You can repaint it. You can do whatever you want with it. It's yours as long as you continue to make those repayments. The difference with a company 
well, the problem with those repayments is you have to make them. You have to find the money from them somewhere yourself. The difference with a company is that you can make those repayments from the money that that company generates. So pulling out completely stupid and, and not real figures because I've not looked them up. Let's say, uh, well, I've not looked them up and I, I can't find out uh, details that aren't out there. But, um, you know, let's say the uh, he's, he's borrowing $30 billion, right? And let's say the interest on that is going to be, 750 million quid a year, dollars a year. If Twitter generate a billion pounds worth of profit every year, that means 750 million of that now will be going to making the repayment on the loan that Elon Musk has used to buy them out, which means their profit will go down to 250 million dollars. That makes sense. So they're a profitable business making a lot of profit. Elon Musk can use the existing profit that they are generating to make the repayments on the loan he has used to buy them in the first place. So it's kind of crazy, right? Um, now, if this was a public company, that would be a really big problem because if you have, um, well, yeah, it would be a really big problem because if all of a sudden you've got a, you've, well, if you have an asset or a company that's making a billion pounds worth of profit and all of a sudden because of this leveraged buyer, all of a sudden you're cutting that profit by 75%. Anytime a business has its profit cut at all, the markets hate it, but if it's cut by that much, that's going to be a real problem. That's going to put a lot of pressure on the share price. Um, but because it's going private, that's not going to impact the price of the company because it's not a publicly traded company. You know, Elon Musk doesn't have to worry about what the current value of the shares are because they're not publicly traded shares. He can keep that information secret. He doesn't need to tell people how much profit they're making. So it happens in finance sometimes. I think another interesting one in not really that recent now, but it, it was quite controversial at the time was was Manchester United. That's and again, this is this is one of the um, the kind of reasons why the Glazer family who did this with Manchester United have such a bad reputation because uh, as far as I'm aware, Manchester United had no debt when they were bought by the Glazer family. Glazer family put up some money themselves. Again, they had the deposit. It's pretty sizable. It was in the hundreds of millions, I think, from memory. Um, but the rest of it, the rest of the, the amount to, uh, that was raised to buy Manchester United was done via a leverage buyer. It was down, done via finance. Now, part of the problem with that is since that has happened, um, Manchester United need to pay, make the payments on that loan. Uh, and so, you know, lots of uh, lots of kind of um, publicity and talk around, you know, how does that impact their, their activity in the transfer market and all that sort of stuff. I'm an Australian. I'm definitely not going to pretend to know anything about football from that side of things. Um, but yeah, another interesting one where it's played out um, – I don't necessarily think you can tie the performance of the team directly to that, but it definitely hasn't helped. You know, it's interesting when you when you see how a club has been saddled with a huge amount of debt. Potentially, that's had an impact on how how much the the management and you know the the, the people running the show have to be able to improve and, and put money back into the team. Same with the company. You know, not necessarily going to be a problem if it's managed prudently, if it's managed correctly, but if you have a company that's saddled with a lot of debt and it starts to become pressure on where they generate their revenue, that can really be a, a tough spot for for a company to be in. So just some just some interesting stuff really happening in in the world of investments at the moment. There's some, uh, yeah, I mean, could rattle off a whole bunch more of them. I think the U.S. tech sector in particular is kind of going through some hoops at the moment. 
So I think we're going to be looking back at this period in five, 10 years, and we'll be looking at quite a different landscape in Silicon Valley. So the last thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about today was a question that I've got from one of you guys, uh, a question from Nick, um, who has sent through a question off the back of the episode I did with Laura Davison a couple of weeks ago. So thank you very much, Nick, for sending this through. Um, If you didn't listen to that episode, it was a few weeks back. Um, and I interviewed Laura and we talked about property. She's a property investor. Obviously, I don't talk about property too much. It's not kind of my main area of expertise. Um, but episode 52, so a couple of weeks ago, Laura came on. She's a property investor and we talked about kind of how she approaches her investments, what she looks for, the way she structures her deals, the kind of tenants that she looks for. Uh, and it was a really interesting chat. She does some um, kinds of property investment that aren't just the stereotypical, you know, buy to let family you know, single people, couples, whatever. It's, um, you know, some multiple occupancy type deals and that sort of thing. So if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go back and have a look at it. Um, but Nick's kind of pointed out that it from, from that conversation, it seemed like Laura is investing via a company. Now, I'm not sure, obviously, the details of exactly how Laura structures her, her business, but I thought it was worth talking about because it is a fairly... Well, not, not a fairly common scenario, I would say, outside of the property uh, arena, but it is something that is worth having a talk about. So, investing via a company, why would you do it? What are the pros? What are the cons? So, look, the main reason people will do this, and you can invest in pretty much anything through a company. It doesn't just have to be property. You can invest in the stock market. You can invest in multiple different types of funds. You can invest in direct um, direct uh, like assets, like uh, infrastructure, that sort of thing. Um, you know, companies can really do anything uh, at the end of the day. And so the investments held within a company can, can pretty much do anything as well. So you can invest in anything. The main reasons people that people do it is for tax um, and tax and flexibility around tax. Because if you are owning assets in your own name, whenever you make money on that asset, if you generate an income from that asset, if you sell the asset and realize a capital gain, you have to pay tax on it that year. You don't have any say around deferring that. You don't have any, um, you know, there's some strategies you can do like making pension contributions and that sort of thing for, for certain for certain types of tax. But broadly speaking, you know, what it is is what it is. You don't have much planning that you can do around that. And on top of that, obviously, as you earn more, the tax goes, tax rates go up. You know, basic rate tax is at 20, uh, sorry, 20%. You then go up to a high rate tax at 40% and um, additional rate at 45%. So straight off the back, you've got some big benefits from via, for investing via a company. And one, one of the big ones straight off the bat is that company tax is 19%. So if you are a basic rate taxpayer, not much in it, save 1% in tax. If you are a higher or an additional rate taxpayer, you can see that straight away, you're potentially not going to pay as much tax on income that's generated. Now, the key, kicker with that though, is when you withdraw the profits from the pro, uh, from the uh, company to yourself, you will pay income tax on it as well. Now, there's a lot of nuance around this, and I don't want to go into kind of a deep dive because it is a fairly complex topic. But if you're looking at tax rates, if you've looked at tax rate in the past, you'll see that, for example, dividend uh, dividends from a company pay uh, or attract a lower level of tax than other forms of income. So if you are, have a private company, your own company, any any income that you take in the form of dividends is 
taxed at a lower rate than income you've earned from, you know, a job, that sort of thing. So again, you can plan for that. You can use things like your dividend allowance to take smaller amounts from the company and not pay any tax on it. And there's potentially savings for things like national insurance as well. So that's one of the benefits. The other benefits is that you can time things a bit better. So if a company generates income, the income is taxed at 19%, as I said, but then you can just leave the profits in the company. So just because the company's made money this year doesn't mean you as the director of that company need to withdraw your share of the profits this year. The company can can hold them. Um, they'll obviously continue to pay tax on interest and that sort of thing, but you know, there's no requirement for that to be paid out to you. So what it means is that you can plan your personal tax around taking money from the company. If you have a particularly good year in other forms of income, you could defer taking money from the company, for example. So there's definitely tax benefits if your other income is at a certain level and the income from the investments you've got in the company are at a certain level as well. There's there's other kind of reasons why people do it. So uh, asset protection is a big one. So, you know, if you went and borrowed a whole bunch of money um, to buy or invest in property and it all went under, you would be personally responsible for those loans. You know, the bank could make your life very, very difficult um, if the investments go bad and you can't afford to um, make the repayments or, you know, renovations don't go as they were expected to go, whatever the case may be. You know, if you are investing in your own name, you are personally responsible for any debt that you incur. If you're investing through a company, the company... Um, holds debt against itself, you know, that doesn't necessarily impact you um, personally as a director. You know, we see this all the time, really, you know, company directors of all different sizes of companies, the company goes bankrupt, completely runs out of money, sometimes is very poorly managed. But, you know, the people running that company don't, you know, they carry on their normal lives, they get new jobs and directors of new companies on the boards and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that that is another benefit. Um, and it also allows you to pull investment with uh, lots of different people as well. So, you know, another common way, um, a common reason that it can be done is it's, it's very straightforward to, uh, if you've got a number of different parties that want to invest into a into a project or into, in, into you know, some sort of asset that is expensive, um, doing that as a bunch of individuals is, is difficult. You need to have contracts, you know, drawn up about what happens under certain circumstances and you know lots of lots of complexity and detail having a company still involves some of that type of stuff but definitely uh, simplifies the situation so you know you can have uh, a company that is set up for a particular property investment or a particular you know any type of investment um and you can then have various different shareholders and directors of that company. So people could put in different levels of capital and get different levels of shares in the company. Um, and it just uh, creates a lot of flexibility for for how that side of things works. So look, there are lots of different reasons why people choose to invest via companies. And you know, companies have to be beneficial because at the end of the day, you know, most of the businesses, if not all the businesses that you um, interact with on a regular basis, are companies. So there's got to be some benefits, right? Um, but there's there's downsides, and really they're pretty simply explained, and that is cost and complexity. You know, whenever you are a individual or a sole trader, you don't really have to do much in the way of reporting. You don't have to keep, uh, you know, great records. You've got to make sure you're paying the right amount of tax, and you've got to be able to prove that if HMRC comes knocking. But 
you know, compared to a company, the record keeping requirements and the disclosure requirements and that sort of thing are significantly less. So it costs money to set these things up, it costs money to set companies up to get all the proper contracts and, and um, shareholder agreements, all that sort of stuff in place. And it costs money to run it on a regular basis. You know, you do need to keep very good accounts. You need to be paying an accountant to run it for you. And so that's why for the majority of people investing this way doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, if you're going to save yourself a couple of grand a year in tax by doing something, but it's going to cost you 15 grand on an annual basis to, to run the company properly, um, it's not worth it. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to cost you that uh, cost you that much, but you know, it is a cost. It is a cost that a lot of people don't have to incur and aren't going to see a great deal of benefit by incurring. So, you know, that's really the main reason why why most people do it. And of course, the other thing as well is that. Property is a bit of an unusual one because of the way it works, because it is a large illiquid asset that you can borrow heavily against um, and potentially uh, get pretty big gains if you can get things like, um, you know, um, planning permission change and and zoning and that sort of stuff. Um, There also aren't a lot of tax allowances that you can use when it comes to investing in direct property. For most other forms of investments, there are lots of different ways you can have tax-effective investing without having to go down the company route. ICEs are are an obvious one. Pensions are an obvious one. Even things like investment bonds, both onshore and offshore bonds, are really tax-efficient and I would would argue as tax-efficient as companies uh, in a lot of cases without all of the cost and complexity. So that's why for most people who are investing in regular managed funds, shares, that sort of thing, you're not going to see much benefit from from a company. But if you do get into the property game, it's potentially something that you know will be worth you having a look at down the line. So Nick, thank you very much for sending that question. As always, really appreciate it when you guys send them through to me. Um, I always like thinking about them. It often gives me things to have a bit of a think about that I don't necessarily... Um, come across that often. And this is a really good example of that. So thank you, Nick. Guys, if you have a question, if you have something you would like me to answer on the podcast, jump over to the website, thehedge.io. You can click the link that is in the show notes of your favorite podcast app, wherever you're listening to me right now. Um, Head over to the website and drop me a message. um, Top right-hand corner, you can see the menu, which got all my social pages, um, which I'm streamlining at the moment, not using it that heavily. Email is always the best way. Get in touch with me via email. Let me know what your question is. While you're there, check out the website. Um, If you've not yet downloaded that free ebook, Modern Investing Fundamentals, make sure you grab a copy of that. All you got to do, drop the email address at the homepage and it'll end up in your inbox very, very shortly, Um, like straight away. Um, There's also articles up there all the time that I'm constantly adding new new content, new information uh, on the website. I'm still carrying on with Friday lunch money. So last week was a week off Easter holidays. We're back to our regularly scheduled program this this Friday at 12 o'clock, this Friday, 12 p.m., I'm going to be talking about the week in finance. Um, I've got a question from last week. Someone dropped a comment on the YouTube video. Again, if you want to join me live, you can ask me questions live. I'm going to be talking about all everything that's happened this week in investing and personal finance. So join me for that. Um, and other than that, guys, I think that's it. I think that's it for this episode. I really appreciate you taking the time to spend half an hour-ish with me uh, this week. Next week, I'll be bringing you an interview. I'm not sure which one yet. Um, so stay tuned for that. It's either going to be an interview investment, another investment deep dive, or it will be an interview with me being interviewed. Let me know which of those you'd like to see next week. But other than that, guys, have a great weekend. Have a great rest of the week. And I will speak to you next week.